Our reading this morning is taken from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, beginning at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. There's a story um, told of Moses coming down from Mount Sinai. He'd been up on top of the mountain to receive the commandments from God. And he comes down the mountain, thank you, to address the Hebrew people. And you can imagine, they're waiting. What is Moses going to say? And they rush towards Moses. And Moses says, friends, I have some good news and some bad news. Good news, I've got him down from 45 to 10. The bad news, adultery is still in. And I want to start in that sense of slightly flippant slightly light-hearted, because this is not an easy topic. You will have heard the passage, and your stomach's probably churning and thinking, why on earth are we looking at that on this beautiful sunny day, with people here hearing bands being read? Why on earth are we hearing about adultery and divorce? And it's not something I often stand, if ever, and talk about. And that's why it's really important that I do. The reason I don't is it's not easy. It is not an easy subject to talk about. Difficulties in marriage, adultery, divorce, whatever it might be, is not an easy topic. We don't want to face it. We don't want to confront it. It hurts. It's painful. It's not inclusive. If I talk about marriage, I'm excluding several people. And there's a sense in our society that we need to be as inclusive as possible. And we run the risk in church of never talking about certain topics because it might not include everybody. It might hurt somebody. It might be offensive to somebody else. But the risk is, if we choose to leave those topics over there on the side, far too difficult to talk about, They become unspoken subjects in church. And the last thing I want is for the importance of marriage to be an unspoken topic in church. Yesterday I took a wedding. You've seen the flowers. I counted up. I think I've taken nearly 50 weddings in this church. Every time I take a wedding, the couple stand here face to face and make promises to each other. 
We go through it at the rehearsal the day before. There's usually tears at the rehearsal, usually the man. We get over that. And on the day itself, there's a sense of relaxed into it, understanding of the seriousness of it, and a joy of partaking in it. But it is the most powerful moment in that wedding service when a couple stand and face one another and make promises and we announce that they are making promises publicly before family, friends and God. They are choosing to marry in church so therefore it is before God and I make that very clear. But these are really difficult promises to make. To commit to one another regardless of what happens. And our society doesn't hold as strongly to these promises as perhaps we would like. If you flip through a Hello magazine, there are very few celebrity marriages that last. And the huge extravagances of the third or the fourth wedding is quite remarkable. But there is a sense in our society that when it doesn't work, you walk away. And the Christian stance on marriage is when it's tough and difficult, you stick together and you do your best to make it work. The Christian view on marriage is high. The standards are high and the expectations are high. And if I feel I can never talk about it, I'm not able to honour how God views marriage. So that's my apology for those of you who need to have an apology. But that is why today we've had that really difficult passage. We're in a series about transformed church. We've looked at and now we're thinking about transformed lives. We believe in a God who transforms our lives. And the Sermon on the Mount is teaching about how how our lives can be changed and need to be changed. And this comes in the heart of that. And it's one that often we'll miss out. We'll pick the good one, salt and light. Don't worry, because that's quite nice. But this time we're going to look at some of the difficult ones. And if you want to look ahead, plan which ones not to come to, look ahead on your term cards and you'll see which ones we're looking at later on. It's so easy to avoid the difficult subjects and I have just felt really challenged that I am doing you a dishonour by not tackling the difficult topics. And if we can't talk about marriage, how can we begin to talk about the other issues that are in our society? Same-sex marriage, transgender. We haven't even looked at marriage. We don't even know what the starting point is. And so I'm not really apologising. I'm giving you an explanation. But we do believe in a God who transforms our lives. And we want to live lives that are transformed, which means giving over every aspect of our life to God. And we talk sometimes in language about our life being like rooms in a house. And we open up rooms to God and we let him in to certain rooms. And it's said that the bedroom is the last room that that we let God into. So today we're opening the bedroom door. And we're allowing God to shine his light into a very difficult topic. So let's look at the passage. If you've got a Bible in front of you, there should be plenty in the pews. We're on page 969. 
And as I said, this comes in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, which begins at the beginning of chapter 5 on 968 and goes through until the, um, um, the end of chapter, well, the middle of chapter 7. Oswald Chamber, who was a good Christian writer, he said this about the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we will live when the Holy Spirit is getting his way with us. In other words, it's a description of what happens when we let the Holy Spirit flood in. Our lives are changed and transformed when we allow the Holy Spirit to do a work within us. And Jesus talks about lots of things. And when you think, this is at the very beginning of his ministry. He's almost laying down his his platform. This is what I'm serious about. These are the things I need to talk to you about. He sits down on a mountain. When a rabbi sits down, you know he's about to say something serious. And he begins with the Beatitudes, which are really hard to understand, and there's always new... Um, nuances into that. We've looked at salt and light last week, which is really about integrity. We think about the lovely picture of salt and light, but actually it's about are we living lives of integrity? Much deeper. The fulfillment of the law, do not murder. And then he turns to adultery. Just when they thought, maybe he's finished, maybe we can get home now. He turns to the thing that nobody wants to talk about. You don't talk about adultery, you don't talk about divorce. These are things that are argued over by the Jews certainly not something you want to hear this teacher talk about. But it shows how seriously Jesus takes this issue. It shows how seriously Jesus takes marriage. He would not talk about this if he didn't believe in marriage. So I want us to think about this, not word for word what is coming here, but why is Jesus talking about this? And I want to suggest that Jesus is talking about this because marriage is important. And if I talk about marriage being important, then these fall out from that rather than working from the rules and working up. So what is the principle? And then why then these things fit in place? So often we start with the rules, don't we? But actually, what is the principle? What is God's principle? His principle is that marriage is a gift of God. That's what we say in the marriage service. Marriage is a gift from God. That a couple become a new creation. A gift from God that we might know his love. Wow. That puts it way up here. If marriage is a gift from God, I don't play about with it. I receive it and I accept it and I look after it. Marriage is important. Yes, adultery is wrong. Yes, divorce is wrong. But only because of where marriage sits. But he does talk about adultery. And he's willing to cause upset by raising it. And he's starting at the root of where some of the problems lie. Marriage is important, but sometimes things go wrong. Why is that? One reason is adultery. We're tempted, and we let that temptation take over, and it leads us into bad behavior. And as a result, divorce can come from that. That's why he links the two together. Things go wrong. We're tempted away. It can lead to divorce. Marriage is a covenant. More than just a promise and a vow, it's a covenant. Covenanted people together. And adultery is a covenant breaker. It's serious. It breaks what God has brought together. 
I pronounce a couple, husband and wife, and the first thing I say is, God, for whom God has brought together, let nobody put asunder. Those whom God has brought together, let no one put asunder. This couple is covenanted together. Let nothing break that. That is the prayer we pray in a marriage service. Marriage is a covenant. Adultery is a covenant breaker. Now, obviously, there are other reasons for divorce. And if we wanted a study on divorce, which I'm not going to look at today, we would need to look at a whole range of other passages because there are different things that are said throughout the New Testament about divorce. Jesus is talking about this here within this bigger picture of the importance of marriage and the importance of fidelity and the importance of faithfulness. Again, I want us to focus on the real issue rather than to think what are the ways in which people can be divorced because it's not going to help us today and I'm not sure that that's why this is in here because we can't look at this alone because there are so many other passages. But I do just want to have a slight aside at this point because as a church we have a policy on occasional offices which lay out how people can access our occasional offices. So for baptisms, any living, anybody living in our parish can come and ask for a baptism. That's our policy. It's a Church of England policy. For a wedding, you've heard the bands read. If you have a qualifying connection, you can marry in your parish church. There is a choice for incumbents about what happens when somebody presents who is divorced. I have my personal view and I'm allowed my personal view. And I can practice that, and that is written down. What is written down in our church policy, which it will need to change when somebody else comes, or may need to change, but needs to be reframed for somebody else, is that I am willing to remarry people who have been divorced. But I take each, each thing on an individual basis, and it's to do with the pastoral situation involved in that. So I have remarried people who have been divorced. If you're talking about divorce, you're also talking about remarriage because divorce is only relevant if you're going to remarry. So you can't say you're allowed divorce but not remarriage. You're either not allowed divorce at all or you can have divorce and remarriage. And I believe that some marriages end sadly. It's a deep pain and grief when that happens. But it is a reality. And I have known many people who have grieved that, who have gone through that difficult time and at some point later in their lives have met somebody else and wish to start again. And when I know that they are fully aware of what has happened in the past, of wanting to make sure it doesn't happen again, go in with their eyes open, repent that past, where the new partner has had nothing to do with the breakup of the previous relationship, I will consider remarriage. And I have done that on a number of occasions. Paul and I have got a good friend. I wasn't going to mention this, it's just come to me. Paul's best man, good, good friend, married to a lovely lady who was ill. And her illness, her mental illness, got worse and worse and worse. To the point where they couldn't live together as a family. And he had to go with the children and took them to his parents in Bristol. And they were living in Inverness to try and rebuild their marriage. They couldn't live as a family, so his two-year-old and three-year-old were in Bristol while he and his wife tried to rebuild their marriage in Inverness. 
and we visited them in Bristol, and he was in tears with us. He said, I can't make this work. I've got to choose between my wife and my children. What a situation to be in. Nobody wants that. And it was to do with her illness. And they divorced. Five years later, he met Caroline. And we delighted. I wasn't able to go because I had a little baby at the time, but Paul delighted in going to that wedding and rejoicing that he had a new start in life. I understand what can happen. And I will consider remarrying people who have been divorced. It's not a given. I want you to know that because I'm your vicar and that's what I do. No one's ever really asked me that before, but I think it's only fair in this context that you know where I stand. Where I'd be very, very uncomfortable is to have somebody come to me who has left a relationship for somebody else and is asking me to marry them. That I would find very, very difficult. Because if I am then blessing something that has caused another marriage to end, for me personally, that is very difficult and very uncomfortable. But I look at every situation on an individual case. I get to know people and I talk to them. If they don't want to talk to me, I'm afraid I can't let them get married here. If they're not even willing to enter into a conversation. And there was a situation in my previous church where I had the conversation but felt I couldn't marry them because there was no understanding of what had gone wrong. It was as though I was young, it didn't really matter. It's as if it didn't happen. And no engagement with the pastoral context and implications. So that's me and that's my aside. But just so that you know where I'm going to be completely upfront with you, that's where I stand on that. But divorce is not what we're working towards. <laughs> Marriage is what we're working towards. The so divorce is the outcome when things go wrong. And we have to think through what do we do. Sadly, we spend far more time thinking, you know, what do we do when things go wrong than how do we make sure things don't go wrong? And that's what I want to focus on today. How do we make sure that we hold on to the standard of what marriage is? What do we learn from Jesus? Why is he talking about it? Why is he using the language that he does? If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. This isn't gentle Jesus, meek and mild. This is serious stuff. Marriage is important. Work at it and do everything you can in your power to make sure your marriage isn't damaged. So number one, marriage is hard and needs to be worked at. It is not going to be a bed of roses and I'm sorry for you who are about to get married. But I want to tell you the truth. I said yesterday to Peter and Esther, you can't imagine that you will ever feel more in love than you do today. But you will, and that's the wonderful thing about marriage. Your love will deepen and get stronger and stronger. But you won't float on this wedding day cloud forever, sadly. The honeymoon ends, that's the phrase, isn't it? And we face difficulties. And we have to invest in marriage. We have to work at it and make it as good as we can. And in order to do that, we need to be honest with ourselves, with our partners, and with close friends around us. Because when life is difficult, we need to be able to talk about it. We need to be able to get support from other people. We need people to pray with us. Sadly, the church is the last place where we're honest. Because it's not talked about. We don't talk about having difficulties in our marriage because it's embarrassing, it shows us up. The church should be the place where we talk about it first. 
where we should be not pretending as we walk in that we've got this wonderful thing going if life is difficult. It doesn't mean we tell everybody. We don't wear a badge and say, I'm having a rubbish day today, shouted at my husband. But we have to have a place and a, and a climate and a culture where we are able, and it might be in a small group, it might be with one other person, where we can put our hand up and say, do you know what, we're going through a really rough time. I don't, I'm not going to give you all the details. Perhaps I will. But actually, I need you to pray. And why should we be able to do it? Because we know we are broken people. We've sung about that this morning. We confess every time we come to church. And yet we put the barriers up and we say, our marriage is wonderful. Don't touch us. We need to be honest with ourselves, with our partner, and in our Christian context. Because we also believe in a God who transforms. And God will come and help when we ask. And if we can't talk about it in church, if we can't get that Christian help and support, we're missing out on God helping us. So we need to be upfront and honest with each other. As I say, it's not coming in and telling everybody. We're not going to have a public confession every Sunday. You know, come and stand up here and tell us about the problems of your marriage. No, because that isn't honouring either. But we need to be how, you know, creating this place where we can do that. And more than that, as a church, we should be investing in marriage. We invest in marriage couples. We have a day with them. We have several meetings as a member of clergy with them, leading them through. We have a rehearsal with them. We share their wedding day with them. And in this church, that's it. We don't then have anything else. I'd love us to put on things where we invest in marriage. We've got an idea already of how we might do that. There's a marriage course that HTB runs, but actually courses are not great here because life is so busy. And asking someone to sign up for six weeks is really hard. And that's why I've never run the marriage course. I believe in the marriage course. But I know the reality of asking people to commit to six weeks is really hard. But how about once a term we have something called dinner date, where you come and have a meal with your partner might talk to the Grantley Arms and see if they can do it for us. And as you come with your partner, there's a question that you talk about. How are we viewing money at the moment? How's the situation with the in-laws? But we have something that we talk about. Because how often do we make time to have the important conversations? But could we do something that says, actually, we believe in marriage, and so we as a church want to invest in it? And, and say that it's important by our actions as much as our words. So number one, marriage is hard. We need to work at it. We need to be honest. And as a church, we need to be supporting all marriages, not just the lead up to a wedding day, but forever on. In Up, they had a long life of marriage. How do we invest at every stage of married life? Secondly, we need to be real. We need to stop closing our eyes and be honest about the temptations that we face. We each face temptations. The grass can be greener on every other side. The love I have for Paul now is a different love to when we first met. And I've lost some of that initial flurry of excitement. Sorry. 
It's become something different. We have something much more precious now. But what we've lost is that when you first meet, every time you meet, there's almost like electricity running down your back. You touch a hand and it's through your body. And of course that has changed and that's gone and it's become something deeper and we've shared life and we have family and we have memories. But the flutter is attractive. The being flattered is attractive. Someone says, I think you look really nice. Oh my goodness me. We're suddenly alert again. Or we look at somebody and think, well, she's all right. Because that's how we are programmed for that gratification of lust. And unless we're honest about it, we'll give in. We need to be aware. We can't stop the thoughts that come. But we need to know what to do once they do come. And we need good boundaries. And we need to know when to say no. And when not to do certain things. And we need to make life easier for ourselves. And avoid certain things. You will know your temptations. It is your responsibility to make sure that what you put in place will help you resist that temptation. When I started working for a church, one of the things that Paul and I talked about was that I'd be having deep conversations with lots of different people, lots of men, because it was a male-orientated place. And the thing we talked about was it would be really difficult if I had deep conversations with another man that I wouldn't have with Paul. And we talked about that. And I realized that even unwittingly, I could find myself pouring out my heart to another man because it's church, because we're praying, and I could find a closeness that wasn't with my husband. And actually being alert to that before starting work was really, really helpful. And it's still something I have to remember. I work with a lot of men. And I have to think, am I being good in my boundaries? Because feeling listened to, feeling heard, for me, is very attractive. And if life at home is so busy that there's times when perhaps I'm not feeling listened to, will I look elsewhere for that? Will I find that closeness somewhere else? That's my temptation, to be listened to, to be heard, to be cared for. And that's so easy because it doesn't look very bad talking to someone. It doesn't look very bad. But I know in my head when it can start switching. And because I've been aware of that, it helps. You need to think, what is my thing that could flip me over? Where have I flipped over in the past? Where have I not dealt with this well? Be really honest with yourself and recognize where your temptation lies and endeavor to put things in place to stop that happening. Because the devil will carry on doing it because the devil does not believe in marriage. And while we have the devil on our back, everything looks very, very attractive. And he'll continue to tell us lies. And we need to be prepared. So marriage is hard. We need to work at it. Be real about facing temptation. 
and put things in place. What you read, what you look at. Talk to somebody. Thirdly, we need to talk with our young people. Our young people are growing up in a world that's very different to the world I grew up in. Our 24-year-old son is in a different world to a 15-year-old now. And he will say to me, Mum, it has changed in nine years. What's the difference? Technology. Every 15-year-old son, um, every 15-year-old child has the internet in their pocket all the time. You don't have to use your imagination too much to realise what that means. They are living in a different world. They are living in a world where it's hard to define gender. To be able to say, I'm heterosexual or homosexual is no longer PC. Fluid sexuality. This is what our teenagers are dealing with. So we've got to be aware of what's going on in the world and in society and try to understand it. But we've also got to model what is good because young people have integrity and they admire what is good. So what are we modelling in our homes? The marriages that our young people see will be the ones that influence them. So are they good examples of marriage? That is really, really important. And as a church family, what are we modelling for marriage? And it might be sometimes not doing all the jobs that we should be doing because there's something about home life that needs to be cherished. And we need to show our young people that spending time at home, spending time with our partner, is more important than being at church or doing a job. You know, you work that out for yourself. But our young people are growing up into a different world and we need to be prepared. That's why we're running parent roadshows, talking about porn, talking about sex. Because we need to talk about it, we need to equip parents. Because the world that our young people are growing up into is way removed from my world. If it's removed from my 24-year-old's world, you realise how fast things are changing. And finally, we need to remember that God is a God who transforms. That whilst marriage is a high ideal, we have a God who loves and cares for us, who takes our brokenness, who rebuilds it, who restores, who heals So nothing is beyond redemption. And it's really important that you hear that. Nothing is beyond redemption. And I believe in a God who heals and restores. And we need to use that for our marriages. So when things are going bad, not to think, well, that's it. There is no hope. No, there is definite hope. We go down on our knees and we pray to our loving God who picks us up, and it might be painful, it might take a long time, and it might end in not being reparable. But we come to God, and we ask him to build, to restore, and to heal. I just want to end with the vows that were made yesterday. It was Peter and Esther. And this is what they said to each other. I, Peter, take you, Esther, I, Esther, take you, Peter, to be my wife, to be my husband, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, 
to love and to cherish till death us do part, according to God's holy law. In the presence of God, I make this vow. Amen.